Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast, on which I talk with our writers and the larger Liberty Circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Agnes Callard and Becca Rothfeld to discuss the movie The Night Porter, which was released in 1974. My essay about that movie is in the second issue of Volume 2 of Liberties. It is also for a limited time on our website in front of the paywall. Subscribers, of course, can always access it um, even after it's taken down from in front of the paywall. If you are not a subscriber, head on over to our website and correct that condition. I'm going to read the summary of the movie from my essay so that the following conversation is comprehensible to people who have not seen it. The Night Porter tells the story of Max, a former Nazi official who worked in a concentration camp, and Lucia, a former inmate of that camp. Lucia was imprisoned because her father was a socialist, and in the camp, she and Max developed a sexual relationship. We learn all this in flashbacks. The movie begins in Vienna about 10 years after the war's end. Max works as a night porter in a hotel where one day Lucia and her husband, a celebrated American conductor, coincidentally arrive to stay. Max is now a member of a ghastly ring of former Nazis who endeavor to obliterate evidence of their past crimes by assiduously collecting and destroying incriminating documents and murdering witnesses who could testify against them. They hold mock trials for one another as test runs to see if sufficient evidence has been eliminated for the members to survive a real trial if one were to be held. In the lobby of the hotel, Lucia and Max suddenly recognize each other, and in that electrifying moment, the respective lives they have carefully built since the war's end are over. Max does his best to hide Lucia from the Nazi ring. She has was a witness to the camp's atrocities to keep them from murdering her. Lucia abandons her husband and moves into Max's dank apartment. While he is at work one night, one of the Nazis comes to visit Lucia and tries to persuade her to testify against Max at his upcoming mock trial, which she refuses to do. Police come to the hotel asking questions about Lucia, whose family is looking for her, and Max eventually quits his job and moves into the apartment with her. They appear unable to be apart. His former comrade keep watch, attempting to kill the two lovers when either one is so much as seen from the window. Trapped inside, Max tells Lucia that she is free to call the police, who can secure her safe escape, have him arrested, and return her to her husband. She chooses to stay. The two remain barricaded inside until they run out of food. In the final scene of the film, Max, dressed in his Nazi uniform, and Lucia, wearing the nightgown, that looks like the one he had smuggled into the camp for her, walk fatalistically outside onto a nearby bridge where they are shot dead. I'm obsessed with this movie, and I think about it a lot. And one of the things that I think about in relation to this movie very frequently is the kind of platitude that, Agnes, I think you and I have talked about this before, that love is supposed to be a thing that makes you a healthier person. And I think the reason that one of the reasons why I like this movie so much is that it, it doesn't seem to think that like the entire, their, their love seems to me to be um, an entire, like absolutely a love with integrity. What I mean by that is that like no one, no one can watch the movie and think that they don't actually love each other. Um, but it it is clearly not a love that makes them healthier people. It actually like weakens them. Do you wh- what do you think about that in relation to the movie? So 
I agree with you that they clearly love one another. Reading your piece on this movie, you made me realize actually a lot of people seem to think it's possible to see it in a way where they don't love each other. But it's, I mean, I guess it's like, it's, it's hard to accept that people could love each other under those circumstances. And it's hard enough to accept that people can overwrite the movie with their own reading of it, right? Um, so it, it, it does seem possible. But um, as to whether their love is healthy, like there's a weird, so their, their love seems obviously unhealthy in the world of um, post-war Vienna, mm-hmm. right? In that sort of bourgeois, Mozart performance, um, you know, coffee set, like nice clothes world, their love looks like an aberration and it looks like um, they, it seems destructive. It fits pretty well into the like Holocaust camp world um, and not just the parts of that world that involve like the, the, them relating to one another, but like you know, there's that amazing scene with the guy dancing in front of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, like somehow their love fits very well with that mm-hmm. scene. Um, so, I mean, um, um, in general, I, I agree with you that there is this sort of tendency to think love has to um, be healthy and be part of a healthy life. It, it's, But in, I'm not sure this movie is so directly critiquing that as like, um, giving us a love that fit in one world in a very messed up world, but it did kind of fit in that very messed mm-hmm. up world. Um, and then it persists. The love persists in inside of this so-called healthy bourgeois world. And now it looks all, um, it looks all messed up and crazy. Mm. And um, that, that, that's sort of how I read it. It's like what we would have liked is for that love to go away. And it's part of what we would have liked is, for that evil world to, to be unrememberable mm-hmm. and to be gone, right? The whole movie is about making the Nazi world disappear and for, and trying to forget it. And it keeps coming back. And the love is like a mode of it's coming back, a mode of it's being present inside of the world that is trying to recuperate from that horror. Right. Becca, do you have anything yeah. you want to say about this question? Yes, I do. I mean, I guess I also think that the sort of quality of the love that they have is unhealthy. Uh, I don't just think that it's been transposed from a healthy context into a context, in, or not a healthy context, an unhealthy context relative to which it might have been healthy into one relative to which it's unhealthy. I think that a passion that consuming uh, always risks the destruction of one or both parties. Um, But I do think that it's just sort of a ridiculous thing to think that love makes you a healthier person in general. I think most of the best depictions of love that I'm aware of, like Swan's horrible, gnawing obsession with Odette in the first volume of Remembrance of Things Past, for example, are instances in which to love somebody is to risk your own destruction. And I kind of think that that is the point of love, uh, to approach somebody with such abject vulnerability that you don't know what's going to happen because there's something, they're they're wholly alien to you and the risk of your destruction is the point. So I guess I think this movie does illustrate well what it takes to have courage in the face of love's destructive demands. But I also think it's just insane to assume that love always makes you a healthier person. And I wonder why the fetishization of health anyway. Yeah. I think that, I think that in, so I guess I I kind of agree and disagree with both of you. I think that in the context of the camps, this, this love was 
almost as bizarre as it was outside of it because like it was supposed I agree with you that like the scene where he's dan where the actually he's also a Nazi is dancing for the other Nazis seems yeah. similar um to the way that their love is deviant uh but their love is supposed to be pure and I think that's one of the things that's really difficult about the movie the love is supposed to be pure um, it's it's supposed it's like the only quality of his that is a good quality. He is like in all other moral ways, um, a, like a bad person. Uh, but they're not supposed to. Those two people in the camps were not supposed to love each other, and their love was an escape from the horror that surrounded them. In the same way that it was an escape from the banality of the world that they were living in, they were forced to live in afterwards. And I think that in the camp, it made, it did make them much healthier. It allowed them to survive in and outside of the camp. It, it was poisonous and it did kill them. I mean, I guess I, oh, sorry, may I, (laughs) I guess I think that it's sort of an intrinsic quality of any passion uh, sort of sweeping and consuming enough to merit the name that it involves risk, sort of the ultimate risk, the risk of selfhood uh, and the risk of sort of your personal integrity. I'm thinking about this a lot because as Celeste knows, I'm writing an essay about David Cronenberg and the fly and sort of like physical transformations attended by love. But I think that that's true. Whether or not like the love ultimately proves healthy is always sort of an incidental matter. I think that what it is to love someone is to accept the initial state of potentially dangerous vulnerability. And so I think that's as true in the camp as it is outside of it in this mm-hmm. case. Was the movie difficult for you to watch, Becca? Yes. I, this time around, I guess, I don't I don't remember how difficult it was for me to watch the first time I watched it, but this time it was difficult for me to watch parts of it. It's also beautiful, so it's sort of, it's pleasant to watch at times in a perverse way too. Did you find... You know, it's yeah, weird. Sorry. I, I had the same experience as Becca, which was that it, wa- it wasn't as hard for me to watch the first time around as the second time around. Yeah, me too. And I think it's like I that I because I knew it was coming, it was like harder to watch. I think that I've been thinking about this so much because I'm obsessed with this movie. I've seen it so many times, and I've since I since I I, I like had to write this piece. I wanted to. I wanted to. There's a very easy argument to make, to make against the movie. It's the argument that is often made against the movie, and it is so obviously wrong to me um, that I felt like I had to make the case for why it was wrong because I think about it so much. But after I wrote the piece and people started responding to me about it, I was like, what is it about me that is making me watch this movie so much? Because I don't know that I would recommend it. I mean, I, I do. I do it all the time. I tell people to watch it mostly because I want to be able to talk to them about it or like I want to see – I'm like studying what their response will be because I want to understand why I'm so obsessed with it. Um, but I definitely – the first time I watched it, I think I was so dazzled by their respective performances. They're both such elegant people. And I th- – yeah, the, their passion is so physically engrossing. Yeah, the way that it works on them. Is that what you mean? Like the yeah, like the, the sort of way that – I think that it reminds me in some ways of Eric Romer's films, which I also love, because I think that 
they uh, are sort of masters of the choreography of eroticism. Like they understand that it doesn't just involve the sort of like standard or conventional sexual gestures. Like they touch each other in so many strange and unpredictable ways. And they seem so genuinely fascinated and enthralled by each other's bodies, which is also true in Romer movies. Like you have these characters who are engaged in these long flirtations who will like play with each other's jewelry or like play with the collars of each other's coats or like kiss every part of another person's face or something. It's not just this standard I guess, I don't know, physical vocabulary that's usually appealed to in like movies about consuming erotic passion. And that like, I find it mesmerizing to watch a movie in which there's a, such a consuming and such an original like erotic passion, like in the realm of the senses is the, is the, is the other one like this, but Romer's movies too. And in this movie too, just their physical chemistry, I find mesmerizing. I just watched Love in the Afternoon, mm. Chloe in the Afternoon, that Romer movie for the first time. I uh, love just it. Is that your favorite one, yes. Becca? I love it too. It, Yes, my favorite movie ever, probably. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd never seen it before. And I, I absolutely, Becca, was struck by the same thing, that, the thing that you just described in that movie, um, which is like uh, all, these, um, all these novel gestures of intimacy um, and uh, every, like in some sense, everything but sex, yeah. right? Um, and, um, but I think there's something else to the night porter that's not, that, that makes it interesting, which is just the element of pain of like, um, the way in which their physical interaction includes pain and blood, like literally, right? So you have these scenes where of biting, of cutting on glass, of bleeding, of licking mm-hmm. blood. Um, and I think that, you know, um, in your piece, Celeste, you noted that like people call it like S and M, and I th- I agree with you that's like a mistake. But that this is why they're doing mm-hmm. that because that's a really really striking fact about this movie and and part of what makes it engrossing. And I, so I guess I just wanted to ask you guys like what do you make of that element of the eroticism, namely the way in which pain is incorporated? What is the significance of that? Okay, the thing, hmm. Becca, do you want to do you want to do this or okay? You first. The image that I had when I was like before I started writing, but when I like knew that this is what I wanted to write about was of, of like two glass vases on a windowsill that like the wind blows them off and they smash and the bits are mixed up with one another. So like if you wanted to reassemble them, you would like easily mistake a piece from one vase for belonging to the other. And that's how I think about them. Like they, they were broken near each other and then like got mixed up in each other. And I think that that's how I understand um, the violence that they do to each other. It's like, they're trying to get into each other because, you know, there's that scene that right after they're together alone for the first time in her hotel room, which is like, that's really when he hits her. And I think it is the only time Mm -hmm. in the movie that he does hit her he goes downstairs afterwards and he's talking about, he says, I I should have written it down. I think I did write it down. I just don't know where I put it. Um, But he says something like, I, I've seen this ghost when, when all seemed lost, I saw this ghost, this, this part of myself um, that, you know, made, made life seem worth living or something like that. And, it really does seem that way. Like they, they're, they're bound up. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think that 
part, like part of it is just literally needing to, it, it not being enough to just kiss the face, but needing to like kiss the blood and get inside. Um, and the other thing that I think is that, sorry, can I interrupt yes. you for one second though? And ask you about that scene where he, so he hits her three times, yeah. right? Like he slaps her and it's this, I think the scene happens like after she has been like the, the, the head Nazi guy or whatever has come in to talk to mm-hmm. her right after she's been chained. Is that's no, not no. when he no, it's when, it's when they first talk to each other yeah. in private, like after they've seen each other, right? He first enters her hotel room and he yeah. hits her. It's not, he doesn't, Oh, okay. he doesn't have, yeah. okay. Sorry. Then there's another scene where he hits her later after she's been chained. Oh, okay. The Nazi he guy. Does he when hit her three like, times? He's like, what did he tell? Oh, what did he, he tell you? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's because he thinks yeah. she's going to yes. leave. So, sorry. I was, that's why. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I'm sorry. You're right. Right. Okay. Never mind. Go on. I was just confused. No, Go but I'm on. glad you said that because I think the, it's, it's so, it's so obvious that the, the, the power relationship changes dramatically over the course of the movie and they're alone for the first time Mm. I noticed this this time I rewatched it like today um they're alone for the first time in that hotel room it's like halfway through the movie there's so much like foreplay before they finally are together and then the rest of the movie is just is just them two or mostly just them two but Mm. by the end like when he first walks in and she's so afraid of him and everything before seeing them, seeing her alone, like when she's pouring the coffee after seeing him for the first time, I think that's my favorite scene in the movie. When you just see her hand shaking while mm-hmm. I, yeah. that is, it's like unbearable for me to watch that scene. And it's so powerful. Um, but so she's terrified of him. She's afraid of him. And I think probably she's afraid of what being near him is going to make her decide to do. Um, and then over the course of the movie, he becomes the one who's afraid. And what he's afraid of is that she's going to leave him. But when he first walks into that, to the hotel room and he hits her, I think you are right that he hits her three times. He's the one with all of the power. And then. I don't know if I think that's true, but. What, why do you, why do you disagree with that? I mean, I guess I think first that she's not necessarily terrified of him so much as she's terrified of the past's grip on her or something like that. Um, but I also think that, I mean, it seems to me that even in some of their like intimate scenes in the camp, like she has some power over him. I mean, even though in some very obvious and of course significant sense, like he has material power over her. I think that just the force of his love for her is... Uh, subjugates not in a bad way but subjugates him to some extent I mean he's so rattled by seeing her like he becomes shaky he makes mistakes that you get the sense initially that he's like this hyper competent mm-hmm. hyper efficient night porter I guess but you know then he messes up he can't he can't remember mm-hmm. some people come in and they ask for their key and he has to ask them like several times like what number the room is because he's so shaken mm-hmm. like it his his shakiness I think parallels her shakiness with the coffee cup to a greater extent than I maybe. Yeah, I disagree with you about that, but I mean, that's okay. I think that he, um, I think you're, I think you're right. Like it's like the, the slave master really Hegel. Like I think you're right that in the camps, she has power over him the way that any slave has power over the master, because if they weren't the slave, then they wouldn't have the joy of being a master. But I think that that changes. He, he delights in having, in being able to hit her, in being, in being the one, um, in, in a position of authority 
And that changes. And by the end of the movie, she is the one who delights in watching him be afraid. Even if you're right that, I mean, I, I think you're right that anytime two people love each other that much, they both have a lot of power. But I think like delighting in making the other one afraid that that shifts. Um, yeah. But I also think that the, the other, the other thing I wanted to say about the violence is that if you, if you've been in, I've obviously not, none of us have ever been in a place like the camps. And so we don't know what it's like to, to see that much horror that often to be, to be exposed for such a prolonged period to that, to some, to things that are that disturbing. But I would imagine, and I think the movie is trying to imagine that when you have seen something like that and you're trying to express an extreme feeling, you have to do it in an extreme way because it just doesn't feel commensurate with, with the feeling unless you can do it in an extreme way, which is why they feel compelled to like literally cut each other. Hmm. Yeah. In terms of the power relation, I mean, it seems to me, I I don't know what I think in terms of whether it shifts or whatever, but it seems to me the story that he tells the, um, you know, German countess woman or whatever. um, uh, Oh yeah. Okay. And then I don't feel bad. Where she, where he's like, no, it's a biblical story. And then he tells, then we see the scene, right. Where, um, yeah, and the, the scene where she has to sing um, before um, um, the Nazis, like not wearing a top, and then where, and then he brings her the head, right, and uh, of the of the of of some other pr- pr- prisoner who had been tormenting her, and that like that's that's him saying this is our relationship, right? He's he's saying this is the story, this is the narrative, this is how it's defined. I take it, right. And like, and, and, and the, it's very complicated to try to understand the power relations there because in one sense, right, look at how much power she has over him. She can get him to cut off somebody's head, right? That's her having a lot of power. On the other hand, right, she's horrified by this and she didn't ask him to cut off anybody's head. Plus she's basically enslaved to these Nazis who can get her to sing in front of them. And he doesn't have the power to free her from that right and so it's it's just a very bizarre power dynamic I agree with you I also I I agree with you I also think it's it's even more confusing because even while he's telling this story and he's telling her that it's a biblical story he makes it clear that he knew it was going to freak her out to open that box and see a head inside of it and he says I just acted like I just pretended as if I had no idea why she was upset I said that's what she asked me to do remember that like Mm. he says that to her and it's like he knew that this was going to upset her um, and he did it anyway. And maybe he did it because that's when the, the, the Nazi woman says you're, you're insane. And he says sane, insane then like as if everybody was insane then. So it doesn't matter. Um, Mm. But yeah, I do think that it was, I think it was like a, a valiant expression of love and also completely cruel. Because he was saying, look, this is what I can do. I mean, it's, it's terrifying. And the love was definitely playing with terrifying one another. I mean, there's that scene where he's shooting. Not only this is what I can. Sorry. I was saying not only this is what I can do, but this is what you can make me mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that she does enjoy like being able to terrify him a little bit to some extent when they like leave mm-hmm. the camps. 
But I guess what I also find so compelling about this movie and other artworks that explore like sorts of similar themes is there's this line at the end of Amir Srinivasan's like initial right to sex essay in the London Review of Books that like I've been obsessed with since I read the essay, even though I don't think, I think the essay basically just, it's not a throwaway comment in the essay, but it's sort of like a concluding provocation that the essay itself doesn't explore, which is like something to the effect of desire can occasion like radical political transformations in a way that like nothing else can by making us like want something that we don't want or something. And I've, like, for years, I've been thinking about like what exactly this means. And I think that like one possibility is just that desire has the, po- has the potential to invert power dynamics radically because what it is to desire something is to be rendered vulnerable in the face of it. And so I think that this movie, one reason that I love it and I feel really captivated by it is I think it does like an incredible job of illustrating like how potent the force of desiring is to the point where I think that it can, even in the context of the camps, at least a little bit if not invert, then at least sort of transcend the power dynamic that's established by the conventions of the camp in the sense that I do feel not that I have amazing cinematic evidence for this. Like I can sort of just say the way that he looks at her in the camps or whatever, the way that he looks at her, like while she's performing, like it with it, she's the star of that scene in the perverse way. I mean, it's a horrifying, disturbing scene. I don't think it like eroticizes her plight or anything like that, but I do think that she in that scene is sort of powerful and he depicted as a spectator, just like looking at her in abject adoration. It seems to me like there is at least some inversion of the power dynamic there, which is a testament to the intensity and power of their love and that's one thing I really like about the movie Mm. yeah I think that I think that um he is proud in that scene I don't think that he feels powerless because he can't he can't protect her from this I think that he's proud that at the end when she's done she comes and sits with him and he's proud that this is this is his this is his little girl, that's what he calls her, that's that's making all these men salivate. And he has ownership over her. But, you know, that scene is, that scene is so disturbing. It's, it's so upsetting to watch that scene. And, you know, I don't think I put this in the essay. That was the first scene that they recorded. That was like the very first scene they did. And hmm. she didn't, Charlotte Rampling doesn't speak German. And she didn't, she, and, um, Cavani didn't like her. <laughs> she, this is this is what Charlotte Rampling says about the movie. So she says that she got on set and she had like four hours to learn the song, and then they just recorded the scene. Can you imagine? Can you imagine like just trying to wrap your head around this character, and that's the first scene that you have to do? I mean, she does a great job. Yeah. I feel like she's so uh, vacant. Like she looks like she's been vacated from her body, like as she's doing it. Yeah. I mean, watching it, I, so, I mean, I had, I wouldn't go so far as to say fight, argument, violent, not violent, uh, not violent at all relative to this movie. I had a strong disagreement with my husband with whom I watched the movie last night because he felt like these scenes did not do justice to the horrors of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he thought that they were sort of like eroticizations of the movie. And I was just like, how can you think that? Like this, the, the scenes in the camp are horrific. Like that scene in particular, I found like really difficult to watch. Yes, I agree with you. And it was really, really strange strange for me to to read all of these reviews about the movie when the movie came out uh, saying that 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 particular scene because it's the only scene that could be I think I mean it's the most it is it is the most disturbing scene I think that's safe to say 
Certainly sexually. I think the, the dancing scene is like also like fairly disturbing. I mean, the dancing scene is the other scene that one would point to if one wanted to argue that this was like a morally objectionable aestheticization of the Holocaust, which I don't think it is because I think that that scene is like also quite disturbing. But he's, but, wait, why? Why is that scene on par with this scene if he's a, he was a Nazi who, was, who chose to do that? I mean, I think that the thought would be, well, my, I find that scene almost equally horrifying just because it amounts to, it demonstrates the extent to which like the Nazis were able to trivialize the suffering all around them, like able to partake in this like highly civilized entertainment while people are are dying. Like this, this sort of the, the refinement of the scene is in itself like a sort of a front, which I think that for instance, my husband sort of read as like, this is a predification of the Holocaust, whereas I read as like, a, this is an intensification of the horror because it's depicting these people able to partake in this like refined entertainment mm-hmm. in a way that even like, you know, like later contrast it with uh, when both of them are watching the magic flute, like they're unable to participate in the refinement of that entertainment because the sort of like internal barbarism that's churning within them is too much to allow them to sit still and like pay attention to the refinement of the entertainment. But even in the camps, all these Nazis are able to do that. And that to me seems very horrifying. Yeah. Okay. I have to think about that. I had, I really had not thought about that scene as, as anywhere near on par. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was disturbing because of the glorification of the male body, which I think would like made sense in that context. Um, but I did. And I think his character is, his character, I mean, the dancer's character, I don't, he does have a name and I don't remember what it is now. So I, I, my, uh, I'm in this Airbnb and my husband is knocking. I think he, maybe I locked the door, which I wasn't supposed to do. I'm just going to run down the stairs. I'm going to come back in despite misreading that scene. Sorry. He says, sorry, the dog is going to jump on me because he's unpaid. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, but I think, okay, this is a good way to talk about this. I think the thing that I find upsetting about that character and he's the most likable of the Nazis, right? Of the, of the, like the little, the little group of Nazis that, um, Dirk Bogart's character, Max has befriended. Um, they're all pretty awful except him, except the dancer. And it's this, you almost feel sorry for him. I mean, he, he is, he is like a full human being in a way that the other ones aren't. The other ones are just kind of awful and allowed to be just awful. I mean, I I think you get to know him a little more than the others and you see that he has to self-medicate sort of to deal with his past, but I, and he's like, has artistic talent. So that's always sort of, um, you know, something one can appreciate, which the others don't, but um, I guess I don't have a strong sense of like him being presented as in any way a good person. He's presented as sort of a desperate and needy person. Um, I, I had a thought about like these varying interpretations of like, is the movie, um, you know, eroticizing the Holocaust or um, it's like something that's, I think, very distinctive about this movie and the way that it treats the, the hor- horrifying scenes that show up is that it does withhold judgment. So if you just compare to other Holocaust movies like that I know of, you know, movies like Schindler's List or uh, the, the one with the like 
that Italian actor where they're like, it's about like making jokes for his son, son. No, no. He won an Academy Award. I can't remember. Anyway, the the, the most movies, like most like publicly acclaimed movies about the Holocaust, um, like offer a lot of ways where it's very clear that the movie is making a moral judgment that this was bad. Mm Um, so like, for instance, here's a way that a movie makes a moral judgment. The evil characters get killed, mm-hmm. right? Um, or like, or like someone like is seen looking at the scene crying or whatever. Like, the, I mean, there are very flat footed ways in which a movie can itself express a moral judgment. Mm-hmm. And I think that this movie really withholds judgment. It sort of shows you horrifying stuff and then does not issue a judgment. And I think a lot of viewers can be like, Hey, which side are you on? Are you on maybe on the Nazi side? Yeah. Right? Um, because it does it doesn't take sides, and that's really um, that's just very very unusual. And you know, even today, like if you you know mention something about Ukraine right now, and you but you don't take a side, right? And you don't make it clear who's you know, like wait, which side are you on, right? And so it's like with 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 events that we see as very bad, it's not always permissible to describe them without expressing a negative moral judgment. And that's, I think, one of the things that this movie is experiencing with viewers. I think that it does have moral judgments about some of the things. Not maybe it maybe it's not as like heavy handed as I think life is beautiful. Is that what you were thinking of? That's what I was thinking of. Exactly. Uh, Thank you. But, you know, he says he says uh to his to the Nazis, I work at night because I'm too ashamed to go out in the daylight. Yeah, that was a powerful moment. It is, movie. yeah, it is a powerful moment, and it's also I think that's why it's called the Night Porter. Thought, yeah, I think that that's true. That is, yeah, why. I've thought a lot about why it's called the Night Porter. But that's what that, I, that's what I've decided. But that's exactly why. But that's exactly why it's it's like the viewer then can't judge him, right? Like he's an evil Nazi, and we want to we want to be like, hey, here's an evil Nazi, and then it's like making him kind of so. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I think you do judge him. Listen, like in my long argument with my husband about this, like I compared this to Lolita. Like I think that another reason that I like this movie a lot is because I think that it it doesn't smooth over the ambivalence. Like I think that it is pretty clear that he's like a, he's an evil person yeah. that he understands maybe. Not, maybe not he is an evil person because maybe no person is ever totally irredeemable or whatever, but he's done like irredeemable, horrible things to the point where he can't even bear to go out in the sunlight. And he's shown repeatedly like the past claws its way into the present so intrusively that you're barely allowed to watch a present scene without all these visceral reminders of all the evil that he's done. And yet it still presents him as a person capable of this tenderness. And it forces you to confront those things simultaneously. Yeah. Much as Lolita, I think, forces you to confront, hum- I don't really find Humbert Humbert like that sympathetic for most of the book there are points where I find him sympathetic but it forces you to confront like the beauty of the prose that he's capable of producing and the evil of his deeds simultaneously yes I think that I think that he is not a likable character and this is one of the things that I I I think you're right Agnes that this is a thing that people have people struggle with watching the movie they think that you're supposed to like him because he's a main character (laughs) I think that's really that's that's the extent of the reasoning, but he is not a good person. And she seems to love him despite the fact that he is not a good person. Not she seems to, she does. Like it's, it, it's not, um, I don't think we're supposed to think that 
the, the fact that he is capable of this love means that he is in some way likable. I think he is in no way likable. I mean, at the beginning of at the beginning of the movie, before she enters, you really you see the way that he interacts with other people, and he is just repeatedly so mean, not cruel, just mean. Like he's just not nice. He's he's not nice to anybody. And actually, at the end of the movie, by the time by the time everybody who's worked with him in his former life has turned on him. You kind of feel bad for him. I I think that I'm trying to figure out what it is that I'm feeling, and maybe it's that I'm feeling protective of her. Uh, but when I rewatched the movie this time, and I was paying attention to the way that he was treating, you know, the boy that he sends to go um, sleep with the Nazi woman or his coworkers at the hotel, you can't blame them for not doing him for not doing him a favor. By which I mean for not risking their lives for him. He was so mean to them. Yeah, I think he's pretty, like, irredeemable and unlikable. I mean, even in his interactions with her, which display tenderness, but they also display such brutality as with the head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't like her much either. (laughs) Like, she doesn't do anything evil, but I don't have any sense of who she is other than a victim. Okay, that's interesting. I do like her. I also... I also think... Okay, I was trying to figure out why I care about him at all. And I think that I care about him for the same reason that I like her. And it's, it's because they both have, they're so elegant and they have the way that they hold themselves and express themselves is so compelling and, um, intelligent. And I think that that is, it's, it's like irresistible to care about them, even if they're not good people. We don't know enough about her to know whether or not she's a good person. Although, she, I mean, she seems like she seems perfectly gracious when she's talking to other people, really just to her husband um, before. She doesn't leave her husband without explaining or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Does that annoy? <laughs> I mean, don't blame her, but it seems not so nice, actually. Um, it was it, that wasn't that wasn't like nice, but she was also just going to go die with the man that who had been tormenting her. So I feel like by that point, it's hard to, it, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to assign. It's a dramatic yeah. situation. I mean, what was she? And she does send him a telegram. Like she doesn't just not show up. It, then she subsequently just doesn't show up. <laughs> she did. I was struck by that, that she sent him a telegram to tell him. him. Yeah. To tell and him that she wasn't going to meet him. Like, yeah. Yeah. She's like not meeting you in Berlin. Like we'll meet you in New York. Like, don't worry. No big deal. But like, you know, I'm just going to die in the arms of my. Did that bother you? That didn't bother me at all. I barely even noticed that. It doesn't bother me, but when I'm sort of searching for evidence of whether or not she's a, it kind of didn't occur to me to ask whether like she is a good or bad person because the theater of their romance, I feel like is beyond good and evil in some way. Like it's beyond like all kinds of like conventional Mm -hmm. judgments. And so it just, but now that I'm like racking my brains for like, is there evidence of like her being a good or bad person? uh, That is just like the only thing that came to mind. I do feel like I have a sense of her as more than a victim, though, because I feel like I have a sense of her as, like, an erotic agent. Like, she seems like she is an active desirer. She is, like, the initiator of a lot of their sort of, like, weird sexual games. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's this scene where they're in the apartment and, like, they're, she she jumps down from the bed and, like, takes a jar of jam and, like, smashes it on the floor and starts eating it with her hands. And, like, you know, earlier in the movie, she smashes a bottle in the bathroom. Like, she's often the person who initiates their, like, sort of more perverse, like, sexual encounters and post-camp life. So I feel like I do have a sense of her as an active 
desirer and participant in this and not just as like a yeah. victim. Yeah. Do you really think that, I did think you think right. of her as a victim? In, in the context of sex, that's right. When you said you think of her primarily as a victim, did you mean be, just because of the camps and just that was the role that history I, gave her? I meant like setting aside her relation, what we see of her sort of inside the romance. Like, uh, so I, I agree with Becca that, um, uh, within the, within the sort of confines of their romantic exchanges, erotic exchanges, she is as active as he is. But I just mean outside of that, like, you know, we see her in the camps just standing in line. Right. And then she's like the wife of the conductor. Yeah. <laughs> like she, so, um, um, but I, you know, it occurred to me that like you were saying, oh, there's this conceit that love is always healthy. And I wonder whether there might be a different conceit that's either also at play of like only good people can be in love or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? totally. yeah. And thus that we're forced in insofar as we want to accept that they're in love, um, we would be forced to uh sorry something is bothering me which is that when i look at my zencaster thing my bar i have no bars That's okay it does that don't do you, do you, worry it, it does that okay I see I, bars. you have bars I see for me bar. oh. do i have bars for you yes you i both see. have bars for me and i have, bar, I okay, have okay. Bars. So, okay for some reason there are no bars for me on mine so i just wanted to make sure i hadn't cut out okay <laughs> you're good um so so um oh, I just over a bowl sorry <laughs> <laughs> where are you um <laughs> it's like Airbnb and like my dog is like crawling all over everything with his like muddy feet. Anyway, please continue. Wait, yeah, what you're saying was important. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I I was saying that I think that like to you know Aristotle has this thing where like only good people can be friends. Like that is the you know the good the only a virtuous person can be friends and only with another virtuous person at least when it comes to the highest form of friendship. Now Aristotle thought the highest form of love was friendship was um, like not romance or eros, right. But philia, but like we tend to think that the highest form of like personal attachment is eros is, is, is love of some kind. And so I, maybe there's for similar reasons, we have this conceit where it's like, yeah, you need to be a good person to have that. Yeah. That's really fascinating. And I've like not thought about that before. I feel like the, the thing that people think of as being the basis when they, when they think about it at all, what they think of as being the basis for like romantic love is typically like beauty rather than moral goodness. I mean, of course I'm getting that from Plato and Plato in turn thinks that moral goodness and the, like the form of the good and the form of the beautiful. I don't, I'm actually quite confused and want to know more about what he thinks the relationship between those things are. And it's, it's hard, it seems like it's hard to work that out actually, but he at least thinks that they stand in some like very, very intimate relationship. If they're not the same, then like one is necessary for the other or something like that. But I think that like in, in the standard imagination, it's not like moral goodness. That's a basis of love. It's beauty. And I, I mean, I wonder if that could possibly explain I don't know why it is possible for them to love each other. And Celeste, you say that they appeal to you impartially just because of their sort of extravagant elegance. So maybe, maybe there's something there. I think that, I think that what I've noticed about this movie, and I think Agnes, that people do say this generally, or people, people move to think this. It's like, it's like a compulsion is she could not have loved him because he was bad. And I, what I, 
that seems ridiculous to me because it just seems so obvious to me that people love people that they wish they didn't love. And I, I guess that's really the thing that this movie addresses head on that people so often behave as if they don't know that people love people that they wish they didn't love or people love people that they don't what like. What if they dislike? Right, exactly, that they don't yeah, like. Yeah, they find That annoying. they find annoying or they find morally repugnant. I mean, I think both. both. You, can, you can and it's complicated and it's upsetting. Um but but yeah, it's it's absolutely not our choice who we love. So if you if you love somebody who is ugly, or if you love somebody which people do, and if you love somebody who is cruel, um, I think people often want to say, "Oh, you couldn't really love them." I've heard people say that. Um, I've definitely heard people. Yeah, I yeah, think that's true. What, we, no, I mean, I, I think that the best, I mean, I'm obsessed with this also. Like, I'm obsessed with being, and I think Agnes is also, she and I have sort of talked about this a little bit, with, like, being in this condition of loving somebody. It's almost like a, the equivalent of, like, a acrasia, like, for love. Like, loving somebody that you don't think highly of, that you don't actually think has, like, merits. And I think that literature is, like, rife with examples of this kind of sort of psychologically fascinating situation of, like, being a hostage to your unwilling love for somebody. Like I think the best depiction in literature of this is Swan and Odette and mm -hmm. Swan's way. But I also think like of human bondage is about this boredom by Moravia is about this. And I think, I mean, it's like a source of great fascination. So it's just bizarre to me that anybody could deny that you could love somebody that you hate or think yeah. is evil because <laughs> that's so manifestly possible. Yeah. The thing that go ahead, Agnes, sorry. I, I was just going to say that I think, you know, the idea, it seems to me the idea that you can't control who you love doesn't quite capture the level of perversity. Because I think you can't control your beliefs either. Like you can't decide to believe something, right? Um, if something seems true to you, you're going to believe it. But th the difference is that um, you can, you know, love someone where it, like, it feels as though your love should track the goodness of people right? It feels to us first personally, like our love should track that. And then when it doesn't, we feel that we can't control it, so to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so, so that shows that the, these people, the, the common conceit, which is like, you can only love someone who you see as good is actually baked into our experience of feeling out of control when we love someone who we don't see as good. Yeah, I mean, I think one question is whether loving is a form of valuing, and a related question is, like, whether love is rational. And I think that it is possible. I'm actually agnostic, and I don't know what I think about this, but I think that it is possible, or it seems to me most likely that if love is rational at all, or if love is a form of valuing at all, it's responsive to aesthetic value. Like, love is a mode, possibly, of aesthetic appreciation, which may, have, may or may not have something to do in some contexts or not in other contexts with uh, moral value, but it's not mm -hmm. the same. Um, it certainly seems like it's not uh, responsive to like moral reasons if it's responsive to reasons at all. Yeah, I don't think it's responsive to reasons at all. I, I think that it can, I mean, no, I, I don't think it's responsive to um, consistent sets of reasons that can be applied in different situations in for different people in a way that makes sense. I think it, I think it acts on people differently. And maybe that's why it's so difficult to talk about because the word love refers to like, a basket of different feelings or compulsions that are, are present in some cases and not in others. And so they don't, it doesn't behave the same way for, to, from person to person. 
Yeah. I mean, I think even further confounding is that like a healthy, prolonged romantic love will involve both Eros and Philia. And so it will, I do think that Philia does involve like admiration, like appreciation of someone's merits, although people have more merits than moral merits. Like you can be friends with somebody because you think that they're smart, even if you think they're kind of an asshole or like whatever. But I think that like it's confounded because people, people, their paradigm case of love is like a healthy bourgeois marriage or something. And so they're like, well, these people can't love each other because they're throwing bottles of jam on the floor (laughs) yeah right and we're like those people can't love each other because they're not throwing anything at each other (laughs) believe me in my marriage we throw jam on the floor to keep it right or for theo (laughs) (laughs) okay guys thank you so much this is fascinating come back soon this was really fun. fun Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Again, the essay about the Night Porter is on our website, libertiesjournal.com, in front of the paywall. If you are a subscriber, you will have access to it afterwards. If you are not yet a subscriber, head over to libertiesjournal.com and subscribe. (laughs) 